Welcome to Brainstorm, Decoding Depression, where we will dig into discussions about mood disorders. We're here to change the way we think and talk about depression in an accessible, approachable way with a leading expert in the field. No topic is off limits. Coming to you from Dallas, Texas, this is Brainstorm. The opinions expressed are our own and do not reflect those of UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT System, or the state. Hello to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Brainstorm Decoding Depression. My name is Katherine Forbes, and today we will be discussing depression, depression research, and the importance of participating in research studies. We'll also be learning more about how research works and what precautions are taken to ensure participant safety. Today we are joined by three guests, Dr. Jeffrey O'Bell, Dr. Manish Shah, and Dr. Dewanda Harris-Tremier. Dr. Jeffrey O'Bell, MD, PhD, MPH, uses his concentration in epidemiology to work with organizations in developing policies, procedures, and programs that facilitate improved public health outcomes. He is the CDRC's National Project Director for the Innovative Development Research Engagement Manual, or iDREAM, where his focus is on recruitment and retention of diverse populations. Dr. Obell, what a resume. We are so thrilled to speak with you today about such an important topic. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Dr. Dewanda Harris-Tremere holds a PhD in Counseling and Psychological Studies with a concentration in research. At the CDRC, she serves as a research patient navigator, as well as a recruitment and retention specialist for our Texas node of the National Institute of Drug Abuse's Clinical Trials Network. Dr. Tremere helps identify areas of interest for clinical trials, acts as a liaison for participants, and serves as program director for the ARMIST study. That introduction doesn't begin to cover half of your experience, and we're really looking forward to hearing from you on our topic today. Thank you for the warm welcome. I'm very happy to be here with you guys today. Dr. Manish Jaw serves as Assistant Professor of Psychiatry in the CDRC, holds the endowed title of the O'Donnell Brain Institute Clinical Neuroscience Scholar, and conducts clinical research. He also maintains an active clinical practice focused on depressive and anxiety disorders. Dr. Jaw, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, happy to be here and part of this amazing panel today. I'm eager to get started because I think this conversation is an important one to share with our listeners. What really is depression? What does depression research entail? How does research work? Who benefits from it? Why participation is so important? And how can we progress it even further? So let's dive right in. Dr. Jha, is there a definitive answer to the question, what is depression? No. <laughs> so uh, the way we best think about depression is it's a group of th symptoms and signs or so things that people experience, report, and what we observe uh, put together that we call depression. In may ways, it's similar to what we call fever. In ways, it's similar to what we call uh, other aspects of our health. The only challenging aspect is that it's a constellation of many different things. So for uh, one person, depression may look different as compared to someone else. It's been exciting to follow the research because there have been many advancements in recent years that you've been a part of, especially with novel treatments like ketamine, esketamine, and TMS therapies. 
So P.S. to our listeners, we have previous episodes about those. So this is a plug to go listen to them and share them. But it's also clear that there's a lot more to understand. What is the CDRC doing to try to better understand depression? That's uh, probably a topic worth a whole series of podcasts. Uh, to the listeners, CDRC is our depression center. That's the Center for Depression Research and Clinical Care. And let me break down our efforts in a few different ways. So uh, uh, the work at Center for Depression Research, led by Dr. Trivedi, the director of our center, really spans the whole aspect of uh, what we call depression. So it starts from even understanding how people get depressed across the lifespan. So we have initiatives, including research efforts, understanding depression and screening for depression in primary care, in pediatric practices, to adult practices, to geriatric clinic, and now making it system-wide, taking it across the state and the country, and really improving outcomes of depression by identifying it early and treating it effectively. We also have aspects of depression research related to the biological mechanisms of what causes depression. And there we are looking at, again, in a lifespan perspective. So we uh, have uh, uh, an ongoing group of studies called Texas Resilience Against Depression, where we are following youths and young adults to see who become depressed and what differentiates them from those who are resilient, even after having high-risk factors. We have a study called Dallas 2K that's following individuals across the lifespan again, age 10 onwards, with depression and understanding what the observational and natural history of depression is. And we, this is just a piece of the puzzle. We are also actively involved in developing new treatments. Again, previous podcasts, we are doing treatments of ketamine. We are doing treatments with TMS. We are doing treatments in youths. We are doing treatments in adults. So it's a very active research center that we have. And even though we are CDRC, we also have a very active portfolio of work uh, developing new treatments mainly for individuals with stimulant, that is cocaine or methamphetamine use disorder. So I'll stop there. Well, there's a lot going on at the CDRC. And as a research study coordinator there, I know firsthand it can be hard to keep up with a lot of the news. So tell us a little bit about some recent discoveries. So uh, again, uh, we have uh, several path-breaking innovations. One key discovery I want to talk about is our effort in understanding depression and who will benefit with a given medication versus not. So a big challenge in depression is that we have over 30 treatments and we do not know for a given person that I see in the clinic if this is if treatment A is the right medication versus B, C, D. So it takes up a very trial and error and imprecise approach. So we have looked at blood markers, we have looked at brain patterns, we have done studies of like MRI, EEG, and really a lot of work from CDRC shows that by understanding the biology of the illness, we can more precisely match people to their treatments. And I think that's a whole body of work, uh, but that's a very exciting new development. And cutting out that really long trial and error period would be super beneficial to patients with depression. Absolutely. So many people worldwide suffer from depression, and while there are many effective treatments available, there's definitely a need to further understand the basis of the disease so that we can prevent and treat it precisely and proactively. You've told us about a lot of the research that the CDRC is doing, but it's important to understand what we're talking about when we describe research itself. Dr. Obel, could you please give us a quick rundown of what research 
really is? Which is a big question. Absolutely. That would take a whole entire hour, but I'll try to truncate it to... <laughs> it took me a master's degree. Five minutes. <laughs> well, from an epidemi epidemiological standpoint, we have two arms mainly. We have the experimental arm, and then we have the non-experimental arm. And um, the experimental arm is also called assigned controlled assignments, while the non-experimental arms are non-controlled assignments. Now, the experimental arm, we have what are called quasi-controlled or community trials, and then we have the randomized community trials. On the other spectrum, where we have the observational studies, we have mainly the cross-sectional studies, retrospective studies, and the cohort studies. The cohort studies tend to be more um, from a perspective like a futuristic approach. Now, what's unique in all these types of studies is that you have participants. And so it's better, it's very important to understand right from the go, when you're designing a protocol, for instance, what type of study you're going to undertake, because if you get it wrong, everything goes sour. But right at, as Dr. Manish explained, Dr. Jha, sorry, um, we mainly at CDRC do randomized clinical trials, and then we have different types of ancillary studies like we're doing, and so these fall under the arm of observational studies. Thank you. And Dr. Tremere, you've worked on study designs and protocols for these studies. Can you explain that process? So how do researchers ensure the safety and privacy of these participants? Yes, there are several measures that we use in implementing these research study designs. For the sake of time, I'd like to point out the Belmont Report, which drives ethical principles and guidelines for the protection of human subjects in research. The three core principles are, the first being respect for person, meaning that we respect the autonomy of all individuals that we serve. We ensure the participants who meet eligibility criteria enter into the research voluntarily and with sufficient information to make an informed decision. The second thing is benevolence, where we respect two general principles, which are do no harm and maximize possible benefits and minimize possible harm. The third is justice. The principle conveys that equals ought to be treated equally. Justice demands that we not only provide the advantages to those who can afford this, but justice demands that we are inclusive to other individuals in the group that are unlikely to receive the same services. And do you think that there's an information gap between researchers and the public when it comes to these studies? Yes, there are differences in the rate of research participation between different races and ethnical groups. While Caucasians are overrepresented in clinical trials, the groups that tend to be lower represented are Blacks and Hispanics. Both groups are underrepresented in research. For example, Blacks represent 13% of the United States population and only 2 to 3% are enrolled in clinical trial studies. On the other hand, Hispanics represent 18% of the United States population and only 6 to 7% are enrolled in clinical trial studies. While there are many instances that I can give, I will give you two examples where representation differ based on disease. On any given day, we can take a glimpse into the health disparities of blacks. When we do, we will see that black women lose their babies to stillbirth 
three times that of any other ethnic group. Research also shows us that Caucasians and Blacks tend to use cocaine at the same rate, but somehow Blacks are at a higher mortality rate. And can you tell us more about the consequences that arise from under or over-representation in research? Representation of various ethnical groups matter in research. We need everyone's voice to be heard. As I previously mentioned, Caucasians are overrepresented in research. They are present, counted, and often skew the numbers because their presence is quantifiable. We can only see things from their lenses and not that of the underrepresented. We need to have a balance and to know that every what everyone's thinking and what everyone's feeling and how people are responding on a social, cultural, and health factor. In saying that, these skewed statistics can lead to differences in how doctors diagnose different groups. For example, without the proper representation, people of color can find themselves under or over-diagnosed and remain stagnant with unmet medical needs. Another result of skewed statistics come when people of color are excluded from clinical trials because the inclusion criteria are so strenuous they cannot get in. Wow, thank you so much. And I also think that it's important for listeners to consider the research from psychology and the history of psychology that they've consumed um, might not include the general population. And that's why the CDRC has a large focus on it and psych research as of recent years. So thank you so much, Dr. Tremere. I wanted to loop back for a moment on the language we're using to describe these different populations and groups of people. Can you talk to us for a moment about why the language we use is important and how our language affects our efforts when reaching out to participants and how we can ensure that we're mindful and inclusive when doing so? Yes, absolutely. Cultural competency is key. We have to be fluent and actively listening to the lived experience of the people. In doing so, we need to tailor our language to the community. In other words, we need to meet them where they are. We need to ask them the questions that need to be asked, oftentimes which are hard questions. And by that same merit, we also need to be open to explaining things in a way that they can actually understand. Mm -hmm. When Gerald Strickland and I go out into the community, we speak the language that is known among the people. In doing this, we are building rapport and quickly engaging others in conversations. The comfort level of the individual becomes more relaxed and they tend to share more things with us. It is not just enough to be reflective in the community. We need to keep showing up, we need to keep listening, learning, engaging, and asking them for solutions and offer resources and follow up accordingly. Wonderful. We really appreciate you talking to us about this. Dr. Abel, you are currently working on increasing recruitment and retention of diverse populations into a lot of our studies. Can you tell us a little bit about the things involved in making sure these studies are inclusive of people from different races, genders, and backgrounds? Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. Um, currently, we are working on a study called iDream, as you previously mentioned. And um, as a researcher, naturally, you want to innovate and find new stuff. And what we're finding is addressing mistrust issues. This is actually where everything stems up. So we, you have to address 
um, mistrust issues between the participants and the main researchers, and there are multiple ways to do this. There are newer innovative ways. First and foremost, you have to be transparent um, from the word go about the entire research venture with uh, the participants themselves. You have to explain to them, not of course the nitty gritty details of the, uh, the protocol for instance, but you know, as Dr. Tremia mentioned, the principles of the Bel Belmont Report, the ethical principles of research, you know, justice, beneficence, maleficence, and autonomy. Those have to be really, really explained from the word go. Secondly, um, you have to address issues such as timely compensation to mitigate this gap. That stems from the, uh, the initial part of uh, enrollment. For instance, when we enroll participants, what we actually do is immediately, for instance, um, Dr. Tremere is done with the focus groups, just by the click of a button, they get paid. What the that, that, that already triggers an effect where the participants want to participate more in their research, and um, you make sure that the research is actually more inclusive. But to be very specific is having a diverse team of um, experts. Um, you want to have a balanced approach, and you have to be very specific on the metrics. For instance, you want to say you have maybe 10% of um, people of color, and maybe you have 1% of a Latina po population from this diverse population, maybe also 1% or 2% of you know the Caucasian portion of it. This brings a holistic approach to the whole idea. And also, finally, it's important to institute like a board. This board acts like a liaison between the institution and the participants. And you get all these innovative ideas creeping in and from all different types of professionals. They could be intellectuals, they could be people who've actually been, who've been afflicted before um, by some of these substance abuse disorders, as Dr. Jai explained. So when you combine all that as a complete comprehensive package, then that's how we are the beginning steps of mitigating the gaps to research. And what would you tell someone listening to encourage them to contribute to research? I would tell them the first thing is call and find out so that they can understand what their rights are from a legal perspective before engaging in any research venture. There'll always be uh, a lead person to go to when they talk to the person at the organization. When you call, ask, what is this research about? What does it entail? What are the risks? What are the benefits? And again, these research projects are funded. Am I entitled to compensation or not? Um, what am I achieving as a person when I'm actually um, being a participant? So I think those are some of the ways that um, I'd encourage people to um, contribute in research. And also when they find out, spread the need and, and the, the new information into the communities. You know, when you hear something, say something, something positive, that's how we affect change. Mm -hmm. At the CDRC, we have many community initiatives, often in schools, working to promote resilience and prevent crises. And these are combined with research to find out how effective these programs are. We're releasing an episode with Tom Osborne from the Shamiri Institute, who's doing amazing work in Africa to provide cultural specific mental health care to students. So in your opinion, Dr. Obel, what can we do as a center or what approach should other community organizations take to help students of color specifically? I think education is key, number one. When you educate, you empower. And mm -hmm. so we have to continuously educate our communities of color, so to speak, about the precepts and the advantages and the disadvantages of participating in research as an organization. 
and also i think we should have cultural ambassadors who actually become those liaisons in the communities who go out in there and um understand who might be um fit or deemed meet the criteria for participating in these research studies and um more innovatively i think as a as a center we should also have um what we call a cultural center i don't want to call it exactly a cultural center but um a center where it addresses these particular questions and then it's people from the community can actually come and find information and read and ask questions to even um the high intellectuals for example dr ja you know he's a wonderful doctor they can find him he explains to them because empowering and educating is what makes this possible mm-hmm. and it's important to yes go into the population and also be available for them Correct. to come to you absolutely anything else for adults that we could do to ensure culturally competent resources in health education i think for adults what i've seen is um we need to bring them up to speed more so with modern technology and also to understand how technology is evolving because we do understand that there are multiple generations um mm-hmm. not long ago i sat in one of a, a very huge conference where i got to understand how different generations perceive information and how they understand it and so bringing them up to speed using technology be it social media but from a safe standpoint mm-hmm. that would be one of the ways that we can achieve this goal oh no i agree and yeah. especially when younger people are reaching to social media for information in order to meet them where they are it is important to look to social media to see how we can not get their attention but help them understand in that avenue that they're already actively participating in Absolutely. dr chamir do you have any other thoughts yes I think it's important to go into the community and ask the people what they want, what they need, and how we can be of help to them because they're the subject matter experts after all. We go in on a weekly basis, Dr. Sabrina Smiley and I go in weekly for eye dreams and we host focus groups and we're talking to individuals just about that. So we're talking to the adults and they are sharing their thoughts with us about the things that they want, what they need, what they expect from us when we're talking about the community and resources. Oftentimes what they're saying is they have found themselves to be uh in the dark, not mm-hmm. aware of the things that are going on. So I think that if we go and we bring our presence, we bring our awareness and we just have general sit-down conversations I think that we can get so much further with the students as well as the adults. And in what kind of environments are you having these conversations? Are you in community centers, in religious organizations? Where do you go to have these? Mhm. So for iDream, iDream is solely online. So we are managing across 50 states. We are reaching individuals, uh high populations where blacks represent So we are in Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Arkansas. We are also uh expanding out Chicago, Illinois, and those individuals are calling in. They are in the comfort of their own home. So if they're in a naturalistic setting and they are able to talk and speak very freely about what they think without any repercussions. Here though, in while we're in Texas, what Mr. Gerald and I do is we go out into the community. and we visit with churches we visit with organizations businesses and different avenues of that nature and while we're out there we are talking to the people finding out what it is that they need talking about how we can cross over and bridge the gap 
and we're finding so many things to be prevalent and true. Things such as transportation, there's lacks of transportation mm -hmm. in clinical trials. We're talking about uh, cell phones. Many individuals still do not have cell phones, or when they do have cell phones, oftentimes they're lost or they can't be replaced because they are on a government um, program mm -hmm. and so they can't replace those telephones so what we need to do is we need more community partners that will help us bridge the gap so that we can reach out and connect and talk and keep the lines of communication open so I think again it's just a simple conversation as far as the community is concerned just going out talking to the community and letting them see that we are human we are looking at them eye to eye and asking the questions and it makes a huge difference in their lives because they know wow they're people they show up they're going to keep coming back and they're talking to us about things that are relevant to us and they know that we at UT Southwestern Medical Center are trying to combat those things and make proper changes for them and for anyone listening who's interested in having these conversations with you how can they reach you they can reach me at the CDRC, generally call me on my phone, 214-648-4347. Uh, <laughs> or they can see me in the community because I'm in the community with Mr. Gerald three days out of the week. <laughs> and Mr. Gerald is another coordinator at the CDRC as well. Yes, Mr. Gerald has been in the community for 33 years and he's been with UT Southwestern for the past 10 years. Uh, having Mr. Gerald go out along with myself, being the trusted resources in the community, is very important mm -hmm. that we're able to talk to people. Once we reach them, talk to them, their comfort level is good. There's a lot of things that we find out, and so we want to make sure that we're meeting them where they are and that we're making a worthy contribution to them. I know that everyone is so appreciative of that as well and everyone that you're having those conversations with. Yes. Dr. Ja, back to you. Doesn't the CDRC's Cloud Break Initiative use a similar approach in going into the community and meeting people where they are? Absolutely. So uh, uh, if those of us who are privileged to be in this room and just looking at Dewanda and how animated and inspiring <laughs> Dewanda is on this. And I think the key aspect, even with Dr. Trivedi's work in depression, is that we can no longer afford to do research sitting in an ivory tower and hoping that we will get something done. We have to be part of the community. So that's why our initiatives take us directly into the community and often in the context of clinical care, that may mean we are in the primary care clinics and psychiatric practices. And studies that UT Southwestern have led over the past two decades, we're path-breaking in the field of depression where we were in primary care clinics, psychiatric clinic, enrolling, offering research to people who are coming seeking care. So we have shown that by doing that, our studies become much more reflective of the population that we want to treat as compared to doing a very clean study, sitting in and, and waiting for people to show up. So that's, that's a very key aspect. And then also big data that we have, the expertise that we have. Uh, to the listeners, Center for Depression Research has over 90 people working. And a lot of them are data scientists and biostatisticians. And that allows us to interpret, like Dr. Obel was saying, with observational research. And we can ask questions and answer them with the data that we have. So we, we are trying to become part of the community. And Devanda has an eye, we always uh, work on this, that what are we trying to contribute to the community? Because when we get down to a particular consent form, 
for that particular individual, that research may not guarantee any help at all, mm -hmm. right? But to how to engage with the community that people feel empowered to answer the question that is at stake. And look, we are not trailblazers here. We have seen this happen again and again and again in science. We have seen the ch tide shift for illnesses such as HIV. We have seen, seen tide shift for illnesses such as cancer. We, uh, my example is cystic fibrosis, where communities come together and ask for more research leads to much better treatment interventions and us being able to allow people to access those treatments. So that's what we need to do as a community. And that's what CDRC is doing too. I also wanted to ask you about the work that's going on to prevent substance abuse in vulnerable populations. Could you tell us a bit about the work that we're doing? Let me answer that. So uh, we are, our center is heavily focused on developing new treatments for methamphetamine use disorder because there is to date no FDA approved medication for methamphetamine use disorder. And within just these are data from Centers for Depression, no, CDC, data for, from CDC, showing that the prevalence of methamphetamine use disorder in non-white population has increased over tenfold in the past five years. So we see that these disorders are increasing, the deaths due to methamphetamine overdose is increasing, and that is disproportionately, that rise is disproportionately affecting uh, populations of color. So we, that's why we are driven and we want to do research that reflects the people in the community who suffer from these illnesses. And that's where uh, our Center for Depression Research is doing a lot of innovative work in developing new treatments for stimulant use disorders such as methamphetamine use disorder. And when you mention that communities of color have a higher mortality rate, why is that? So uh, let me clarify, what, what is increasing is the rate by which these disorders, so we see that overdose deaths due to drugs are increasing across the board in the United States. It's no single community is actually spared. What we see is, especially for methamphetamine use, it's growing faster in the non-white community. And I think that is probably how the drug supply works because methamphetamine historically over the years was probably being produced more in the white community and being accessible that way. And how the supply of these uh, illicit drugs work, I think that pattern has changed. And I'm not an expert on that, but that likely has more to do with it, how people get access to these drugs and how they consume it rather than any specific aspect of a community. I also think that it has to do with how we set up treatment interventions, we set up resources, mm -hmm. and how we are making those available. A key aspect of overdose death that we need to keep in mind is how fentanyl is often an adulterant in these drugs. So we see individuals who are primary substance that they use is a stimulant such as cocaine or methamphetamine, but their urine drug screen comes back positive for fentanyl, and they did not know. We have seen this happen where people had to be rushed to the ER because they consumed something that had fentanyl that they were not aware of. So those are, again, uh, aspects of why we are seeing this more happen uh, and why the increasing rate is more higher in the uh, communities of color. Do y'all have anything else you want to say to that? I think it's also um, 
accessibility, as you mentioned, and a lot of dynamical issues on the way the population, the, the, the society is structured currently. If you look at right now in the United States, the social determinants of health have really, really changed in the last 25 years. And so that also would contribute to what Dr. Zhao was talking about, why you'd see that um, skewed representation of, for example, methamphetamine use or you know, multiple usages of other um, substance abuse and having you know, positive UDSs. So for instance, if, you pick a, if I pick a state, for example, like Chicago, you see, you'll have high metrics of what's being consumed there compared to other places because of maybe the housing uh, market, this, the income, and all these kind of social determinants of health. So and there's a million different factors. Yes, which yes, yes. That's, that's, a, that's, a, whole, that's a whole topic, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is such important work all across the board, and we really appreciate all of the insight you've provided today. Now, this is a question that we are asking all of our guests. What do each of you think is the biggest misunderstanding about mental health in general? And I will add for this episode, what is the biggest misunderstanding of research as well? So I'll make it short. I think it's the fear of the unknown. And um, without being apolitical, but that fear of the unknown is what probably contributes to a lot of the misunderstanding. Um, I'm not a mental health specialist like Dr. Ja, but I know from a public health perspective, that's one of the main issues. Historical injustices, mm-hmm. um, as Dr. Tremia mentioned, for example, the Tuskegee um, trial, that is actually one of the biggest misunderstanding of mental health. So until you're able to answer these answers through innovative means of research, as we're doing at the CDRC, then that's one of the key cornerstones of addressing this problem and this gap. So uh, regarding misunderstandings, or probably the need about mental health and mental health research is that uh, this notion that it doesn't affect anyone that we know or we mm. don't have it. Or uh, The key aspect I talk about is that uh, often illnesses related to mental health are not as clear as maybe like a broken bone. I'm not going to do an x-ray and show you. These rely on people's individual experiences. We don't have uh, blood tests to say if someone has something or not. And that is part of what our being a human experience is, and that's part of where the science is currently lacking. So uh, the first thing I would say is that we should all ask for more research. So if I am a clinician, I should be prepared to answer questions if one of persons talking to me or seeking care from me says, what's new in depression research, (laughs) right? And if I am a, a, a client or a person seeking care, I should feel empowered to ask that question. I should feel empowered to say, what is new in this? I have been on these treatments for 10 years, doesn't seem to be working or we are on a holding pattern. Tell me more what is there in research. And as we start having more of these discussions, we will lead to that goal that we have been talking about today is creating an engaged community. So that is what my uh, take on what is needed in mental health research. I'd like to add to what the doctors both said. I believe one of the biggest misunderstandings in mental health is that individuals experiencing mental health issues look a certain way. We overlook individuals that are functioning day to day, but suffering from depression, substance use disorders, or experiencing losses, such as loss in relationships, sickness, loss of jobs, or rejection, just in general. I also believe that the biggest misunderstanding about 
research lies with misrepresentation. In other words, if research is misrepresented by the absence of people of color, misunderstanding will continue to exist. Thank you so much. And if there's one thing you wanna be sure to get across before we sign off, any one of you, what would that message be? We need a more engaged community. We need everyone asking for better care. We need everyone asking for better research. And we need everyone to just say that we cannot take the status quo as it is right now. And we need it to change. I would say, if you're out there in the communities, don't be shy. Call the numbers for the CDRC. Ask to learn how I can participate. Visit our department to learn about the various studies that we have and keep the ball moving. We've discussed a lot today in regards to clinical trials extensively. I'd like to say that until we get equality across the board and get equal representation from our researchers, our PIs, doctors, and others in the community and data findings will remain in balance. So we need to work really hard and dispatch misrepresentation. So I would ask all blacks, Hispanics, other minorities, everyone in the community to be intentional and join us in clinical trials and be present, be accounted for, and be represented. Thank you so much. Dr. Jha, Dr. Tremere, and Dr. Obel, thank you again for taking the time to do this interview and for giving us so much great information about depression research and how to get involved. That's it for this episode of Brainstorm Decoding Depression with your hosts from the Center for Depression Research and Clinical Care. Be sure to follow us on social media at UTSW underscore CDRC so you don't miss our episode announcements. If you have suggestions for topics or questions you'd like answered, we have an email address just for this podcast, decodingdepressionpodcast at utsouthwestern.edu. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>